Frankie, a question for you. Luke, I think, is indulgently uh, but dubiously ready to give this a try, <laughs> but your opinion matters too. Huh. I've got this PowerPoint that I'm sharing that will just automatically advance after the timings that we've set and give us big <laughs> red warnings when we've got one or two minutes left, depending on whether it's a five-minute or a ten-minute notional segment. Do you want to try that or do you want to say that's a delusion? <laughs> well, I mean, I think I'm glad it's you that's proposing to use this because <laughs> I feel like of the three of us, it's probably you and me that are the most at risk of ignoring such a device. <laughs> so, like, I'm, I'm willing to give it a red hot go. And then we can always right. laugh about it later on when, like, our screens just go into meltdown at the two-hour mark. <laughs> like, what, what happens? This PowerPoint will self-destruct after three hours. <laughs> what happens after it gets to the 45-minute mark? Do we get increasingly irate, like, memes start flashing up on screen? Clippy will appear and say, you appear to be a- attempting to end this podcast. Would you like help with that? <laughs> And I'll say, yes, please, please. This is Let Me Sum Up, your regular deep dive into recent reports on climate and energy. I'm Luke Menzel, recording today on Wurundjeri Land. And for our first episode of 2023, I'm delighted to be joined by my two co-hosts, Global Vice President for Marketing Extortion at the Let Me Sum Up podcast, Frankie Muscovich. Hello, Frankie. Good evening, gentlemen. I'm a little bit nasal, uh, but I am so delighted to be back with the two of you for this podcast. And I'm on Gadigal land, Aboriginal land, always was, always will be. All right. And a man whose PowerPoint superpowers are exceeded only by his excellence in Excel, Tennant Reid. G'day, Tennant. <sighs> Old claims. I think there are there are people who understand Visual Basic out there who are sneering at me through the ether waves of podcasting. They know I'm not half the office user they are. <laughs> on this week's show, we embark on a possibly ill-considered attempt to cover all the big news from January by summing up both the Safeguard Mechanism design paper and Professor Ian Chubb's review into Australian carbon credit units. But first, long-time listeners will know that Tennant is a man of many interests and enthusiasms, but few of them have burned as bright as his passion for carbon border adjustment mechanisms. This previously obscure piece of policy has rocketed into prominence as the government's safeguard mechanism design paper commits to a review of whether a CBAM is something Australia should implement. Uh, now, we're about to discuss this paper in detail, but I, I couldn't let this milestone... Pass tenant, um, you literally wrote the report on CBAMs and their implications for Australia. How are you feeling? Oh, look, I'm I'm a little bit excited <laughs> about this. Uh, it's it's pretty exciting to see something that has been your personal, private, really weird obsession <laughs> turn into something that became relevant, and then became something that uh, policymakers start to take a really serious look at. I have to say, I am not 
the only person in Australia or even the longest standing person in Australia with an interest in CBAMs. And I would like to pay some tribute to Jeff Carmody, Mm. the uh, eminent economist, co-founder of Access Economics and guy who I thought, wrongly, was a bit balmy when he was banging on about CBAMs Back in 2008. Are you using that phrase, carbon border adjustment mechanism at that time? or was uh, He it- was. Yeah, right. He was. And uh, he was talking about them in the context of his consumption-based carbon tax mm. concept, which was very GST-ish, and uh, saying, oh, and you do a, a carbon border adjustment on top of that. Mm. And I, I don't think the GST thing was that great, but... The CBAM, um, he, he, he was a far-sighted man. Of course, CBAM is something that the federal government is going to have a look at. They have rigorously not committed yet to do it, mm. and it's a big discussion to be had, both within government and with stakeholders in Australia and uh, internationally uh, with our, our trading partners so, you know, don't don't count your CBAMs before they've hatched. <laughs> but it's, it's you know, it's a big step to even be looking at it. Nonetheless, I think we should uh, pay a special round of let me sum up tribute and congrats to your efforts in stimulating that conversation in recent times, Tenant. Bravo. And uh, I would further encourage our listeners uh, to uh, take a look at your paper. Uh, 2021, I want to say, Tenant. 2021. Uh, yeah. What's it called again? Into the show notes it will go. Swings and roundabouts. <laughs> the unexpected effects of carbon border adjustments on Australia. Uh, my abiding memory uh, of, uh, of that paper uh, is that you made it into a cake. You were so pleased with it. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I should say, actually, if uh, if you're not prepared to go uh, read Tennant's excellent paper, I actually, on my other podcast, did interview you on that paper. So maybe we should chuck that in the show notes as well, because that's probably that's a great for idea. folk that are podcast aficionados. That might be a very efficient way of getting you head around the uh, the CBAM space. We definitely should, but we should also post a link to the photo of the cake. <laughs> that that <laughs> deserves a- its moment in the sun also. <laughs> it was a good cake. It was very tasty. Sweet forgeries make great art cakes, <laughs> usually with better pictures than the clip art palooza that was on my cake. All right. So it sounds like a uh, uh, at least a third of our show notes uh, this episode will be taken up with CBAM-related content, <laughs> as is appropriate at this uh, auspicious occasion. Uh Shall we chat about a couple of reports? Yes, we should. I don't think we're biting off more than we can chew. Of course chew. not. I think <laughs> this is going to work out great. What could, what could possibly go wrong? Everyone, this is the point at which you uh, you settle back <laughs> for at least the next hour as we dive into our 45-minute podcast on papers. I'll be so impressed if this only takes an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
January 2023 saw the release of two blockbuster climate reports in Australia. On the 9th of January, the independent review of ACUS, commonly known as the Chubb Review, after the review's chair, Professor Ian Chubb, released the results of its six-month investigation into the integrity of Australian carbon credit units. Then on the 10th of January, the Albanese government released its proposed reforms to the safeguard mechanism, the next step in the government's efforts to retool an Abbott-era program to drive down the emissions of around 215 of Australia's biggest emitters in the middle of this year. Now, Frankie, a lesser podcast would have settled for covering just one of these reports in depth, or indeed splitting the discussion of them over two episodes. But as the podcast of record for Australian climate reports, it was incumbent on us to catch up on both, and they are closely interrelated. Uh, Where do you want to start? Well, you're right to say they're intrinsically linked. And I think the Chubb review is a good place to start with this because, you know, so much of the initial action by safeguard entities will involve consideration of ACUs in in one way or another. So why don't we dive into what Ian Chubb and his panel had to say about the integrity of that scheme. I think there was a lot of media reporting uh, around after the election last year. Indeed, the government, uh, this was one of the very early things the government committed to do in terms of reviews and, and looking at structural reform. Short, sharp review. Short, sharp review. So they, they commissioned Ian Chubb at the panel in July last year in 2022 and gave them only six months uh, to have a pretty comprehensive look into the functioning uh, of the, the scheme or the, the ERF and looking at uh, the not just the integrity of the methods uh, that sit within that scheme, but also the governance and, uh, and sort of transparency around how the scheme operates. Now, uh, that didn't come out of nowhere, obviously. Uh, In recent times, there were a lot of critiques uh, around... The, you know the sort of contention that a majority of the credits that were being issued uh, under three of the main methods, um, which we'll get to, were, did not represent real and additional abatement. So there were claims that there were sort of bad rules governing project eligibility and abatement est- estimation, so bad bad methods and poor interpretation and implementation by the clean energy regulator, who has a very significant and widespread role over the scheme as it was uh, when it went to review. And and really the root cause uh, of a lot of those issues, the critics said, uh, was a combination of a poor governance and, and a lack of transparency around the scheme. And it is important in the context of this to note, you know, what chief among those critics was uh, Dr. Andrew or Professor Andrew McIntosh. He's a leading environmental law and policy scholar at uh, at the ANU, and he was also uh, a chair of the Australian Emissions Reduction Assurance Committee or ERAC, uh, the committee that oversaw uh, the assurance of methods in the RF for a while. So he was very well placed, I think, uh, and someone who's <laughs> Uh, you know whose concerns you would take seriously uh, when raised. So pretty powerful when the gamekeeper says the poachers are running riot. There's no integrity in the preserve. Mm. It's a disaster. That's that's a powerful statement. He was labelled a whistleblower for a while. I think people criticised that form of labelling because he had been involved in the scheme for a really long time as well. Um, but nonetheless, it was a you know. I think a really brave thing uh, to come out and, you know, and call for uh, for change the way he did. And when I mentioned the issues with the methods, uh, 
not having represented uh, real and additional abatement. They were mostly the critics were mostly talking about three methods, but but they're the three methods that make up over three quarters of accus generated under the ERF. That is the avoided deforestation uh, method, uh, the human induced uh, human induced regeneration method, and the landfill gas method. And they each uh, sit somewhere, you know, between sort of twenty and thirty percent um, of the accus generated. So, you know, if if it was found that one of those methods wasn't robust, and perhaps uh, credits associated with them shouldn't shouldn't remain, like that's a significant. Um, yeah, that's a significant impact to the scheme. So that's the background. Uh, what's very interesting about this review is that whilst it does note those critiques and, you know, so it definitely doesn't seek to ignore that in the commentary, it says very clearly in its findings that the panel did not share that view, that whilst they were provided with some evidence that supported that position, that that abatement was being overstated or uh, or, in, or in some level wasn't being met. Uh, they also note that uh, it was the panel was provided with evidence to the contrary. I'm sure we'll uh, dive into the discussion uh, here, but it's a. Uh, it, it's sort of interesting in terms of the the overall findings from the panel uh, state that by and large they th- they thought that the the settings of the scheme were sound and then they identified some areas for improvement to you know improve governance robustness and transparency and the like but a lot of the um, recommendations proposed are pretty sweeping reforms to the scheme. So it's it's interesting to hear it characterises this is essentially sound, but here are some rather fundamental changes to the governance and transparency of the scheme that need to happen. You're absolutely right. The, the finding, the overarching finding is this is a fundamentally sound scheme and naturally it will keep evolving and improving. And here's some recommendations for how it can evolve and improve right now. And uh, we should say that the government has accepted in principle all of these recommendations Mm. and some of them are going to take a bit of work to do, some of them are going to take a bit of money to do, Uh, but so far the the signal has strongly been whatever's necessary they're going to do. So the the recs fall into two broad buckets uh, one is around the the governance and transparency. So uh, the clean energy regulator had a bunch of different jobs to do, and those are going to be hived off uh, a bit more. So the um, what what is currently the emissions reduction assurance committee will be still more independent and better resourced, and and basically not just um, dependent on a secretariat inside the clean energy regulator and it's going to turn into the cake uh, so cue lots of jokes about having your cake and eating it um, the uh, there will be a boost to transparency uh, around the, the publication of much more information uh, about uh, various elements of this uh, and uh, then of course the, C, the the clean energy regulator won't be the one doing the buying of offsets on behalf of the Australian government anymore. Uh, a, a separate body is going to do that. Maybe uh, that'll be a job that the Department of Climate Change and uh, 
energy environment and water gets, but not the regulator being simultaneously uh, the um, the assurer of um, and, and regulator and the biggest buyer at the same time, which caused some people some concern. Then the other bucket is the changes to the methods. And uh, these, these are a bit diverse. So on HAR, human-induced regeneration, yeah, it's... Uh, there's, a, there's several recommendations, but broadly it's transparency. Like what I took from this is if people could see uh, what is being done more clearly, they would have more confidence in what is being done. And in particular, that action by the project proponent to uh, take away uh, the main inhibiting factor, the dominant factor that is um preventing reforestation or regeneration on this land, um, that that, what that factor is and and what has been done to remove it. Um, On avoided deforestation, they say basically, look, stop issuing any credits for this because there's been no more issuance for a while of the land clearing uh, permits that... Uh, create the potential to be credited for not using your permitted land clearing right. And on landfill gas capture, they say, look, this is still a a thing worth doing. It's worth still crediting, uh, but uh, it's going to have an upward sloping baseline. That is, we will expect over time that more and more capture takes place just as business as usual and is not something that you get credited for uh, doing any of. So when it comes to the methods, I'm really interested to hear what you two think about this. Here's where I think the review falls down a little bit, Uh, whether it might be because of the limitations placed on it in terms of scope of their review and the time they had. But, you know, a lot of the the critics who had, you know, wanted to see this review done, you know, had put forward, you know, evidence to suggest, particularly in methods like uh, the human-induced regeneration method, um, that, you know, were to suggest that projects were being set up in areas, um, you know, effectively were already already having like a decent amount of vegetation cover and that they were contending that a lot of the reason for growth in that area had more to do with rainfall than the actual um, intervention or the the key suppression measure tenant that you uh, outlined. And I also think it's fair that they say if there was more transparency about what those suppression methods are, then maybe some of that critique would fall away. But you know, the panel talks about getting contrary evidence, but it doesn't unpack any of that in this report, really. Mm. And what's also really missed through the report is that they also commissioned the um, Australian Academy of Science to do, for the panel, an independent review of four of the methods, including the three that we've talked about. And on, you know, on on a couple of these, particularly human-induced regeneration, they do highlight a number of issues uh, associated uh, with the methods themselves, including, you know, how easy it is to set um, credible baselines and a whole bunch of things that aren't really addressed uh, here in, in terms of the recommendations and... 
And the fact that they weren't able to look at individual projects, I think, makes it a little hard maybe to engage with some of the critiques at that granular level when all they're doing is really, you know, sort of staying up a little bit higher at the method level. This is this is where this started to get a bit funny for me uh, in terms of uh, everything's fine, but here are some sweeping reviews in governance and transparency and of these three main methods. By the way, you can't use one of them anymore moving forward. The other one should have adjusted baselines and and then not really dealing with I think some of the issues that have been raised in a substantial way in the actual document um I'll stop my rant but for for the whole critic for critique about lack of transparency you think there would have been more effort to go into a lot more detail about the critiques on both sides and really unpack that this is a really odd report Mm. to read Uh, especially if you haven't been following the blow-by-blow of every in and out of the, you know, accu-wars, if I can put it that way, that have been taking place in Australia over the the last 12 months or so. It reads like uh, the review panel is stepping through a minefield. They don't really want to call a spade a spade. Um, It's more likely to call a spade a tool to pierce the <laughs> earth and leave it dirt out of the ground. And a tool on which there are sincerely held views <laughs> from many quarters. Exactly right. Um, it, it goes to great length not to be critical of anyone. It's not critical of the former government. It's not critical of current institutions. Importantly, I don't think it's critical of the critics, though, either. Mm. Mm. Like, it goes out of its way to say it's actually reasonable that critics have these views, but a potential reason that they have these views mm. is because they don't have all the information. Mm. There's there's a lot of, and they don't say this exactly, but the vibe is people of goodwill on both sides will disagree. We understand that, you know, their, their, uh, their opinions are held in good faith, um, but we don't think the issues that uh, they highlight are there. The problem is they don't really make a case for why those issues aren't there in a very compelling way. And so if you're a critic of uh, the way these methods play out, I I can understand not being satisfied by this review because it doesn't... There are logic gaps and uh, gaps of argument and evidence. It's asserted there isn't an issue, but it's not really explained why there isn't an issue. And the critiques aren't necessarily appropriately addressed or unpacked in the report. To to understand the report, you really need to go mm. and engage with the work of Professor McIntosh and his colleagues in order to even understand what the, what the report is talking about half yeah. the time because it doesn't it doesn't sort of characterise the critiques in a in a fulsome way that allows you that allows you to then understand the response. It's kind of referred to obliquely throughout. Yeah. It's a strange read, right? The the body of the report is is largely just longer versions of the recommendations. Mm. Uh, it's rare that we do a paper for this podcast, and we wish it was much longer. <laughs> And, and I'm not sure if that is the case even no, here, but it I feels like... I wanted it like, to be longer. <laughs> well, it 
feels like that somewhere there's a like a 600 page <laughs> attachment to That's this missing. that does go blow by blow through the stacking up of evidence and critiques and whatever and maybe they didn't have time maybe they thought because they didn't have a lot of time mm-hmm. maybe they thought it wouldn't be productive maybe they thought it would make more people unhappy but they've just gone for the look here's what to do. I mean, this panel has acknowledged that uh, a lack of transparency around certain elements of the scheme has not served it well. And I think it it would have been the right call at this particular time as well, because I think, you know, you had a new government, a, a real opportunity to do the big structural reset while you can, you know, clear mandate, some clear air to have those difficult conversations with all stakeholders. My view on balance is that this review would have been received better if it had engaged more in that detail and really sought to outline the evidence on both sides and articulate a stronger rationale for why it took the reasoning it did. So one of the issues, I think, and you you touched on it, Frankie, is that it, it didn't have the, the, the time or, or the ability to engage deeply in the actual data associated with real-world projects. It was operating at this sort of thirty to 40,000-foot level. Mm. Um, and so I wasn't I'm privy to the, the process. This isn't even in my area of expertise. But absent, you know, that deep engagement with the data, it's hard to understand how they can effectively respond to a critique uh, which is which is based on data that has been collected uh, around real world world projects, right? Well, I just think there's this. You can't tell that from this paper. It may well be that um, you know they were presented with this evidence, which might be you know mm. a comprehensive overview of data analysis across a bunch of projects that was done for them. You know that that did kind of provide a compelling um, case, uh, you know, against um, some of those critiques that had been made publicly, but but they don't go into that. So, like, yeah, I think it just comes down to um, not wanting to be too hard on them because I do think they didn't have a lot of time because um, there's, there's so many methods under this um, scheme and, uh, like, I think they had their work cut out for them in six months. Uh, but equally, if the task of um, doing the thing right might have merited a little bit more time um, to do this, it would have been nice to see that happen. Well, there's one reason why the the clock couldn't be stopped, which is that the settings for ACU generation, what's going to be available, are incredibly important for the safeguard mechanism and in a little bit we'll get into just why they're so important and the safeguard mechanism is meant to commence in its uh, expanded uh, form or intensified form on 1 July 2023 Mm. which is not very far away Um, so you know Sometimes you have policy processes that can work in parallel. Sometimes they've got to be in series. You need something locked down before something else can be settled. And and this is one of those. So uh, we've been a bit critical, but there are good things about this review. I think, you know, all the recommendations around governance are eminently sensible. 
Like this is mm. quite a significant reset in terms of the governance and the, the strengthening of those institutions, the review process. Over time, it seems like a lot of stuff had just been given to the CER to do and inherently in this sort of scheme, having one entity effectively judge, jury and executioner um, when it came to accuse is is fundamentally an issue. And there's a lot of wording in this in this paper around, you know, um, conflicts and perception of conflicts. Mm. There is an amazing sentence, which I've got to read out. Uh, In the panel's view, whatever positives may have been intended, a serious downside has been the perception that the CER has too many roles and could be, or is, or is just thought to be, conflicted (laughs) because of that range of responsibilities. Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a pretty classic job review line, um, but the point is that you know the disaggregating that is is healthy and uh, yeah. and uh, I think the the other thing that occurred to me coming out of all of this is that um, while one could be critical of the failure to either engage deeply with what was going on in those methods or if they have engaged deeply as you say Frankie showing your homework and explaining why you've come to the conclusions that you have. That governance reform um, should, of its own volition, if it's successful and done well, start to resolve, you know, remaining issues over time because you're going to have a, you know, a significantly strengthened uh, review process. They have reformed the the process for proposing new methods. there's a lot of talk of resourcing and the fact that you this like the strong implication is this this whole process has been massively under resourced under the previous regime so there's a view that that needs to be massively ramped up so one would hope that uh, the governance reform um, deals with with the long tail of issues that perhaps weren't weren't able to be resolved through this short sharp review yeah, I, I don't think we should uh, understate the potential uh, flow and impacts from these reforms, which are which are structural and necessary, and I think very welcome uh, to almost all stakers. I don't think there was anyone disagreeing with the idea that um, there needed to be those separation of roles out of the CER. And uh, for mine, I'm really interested to see what happens with uh, the the reformed Iraq in the form of cake. Um, because, and, and we, you know, we're going to be talking about the implications for the safeguard mechanism, but, um, you know, we talked about these three main methods that have been responsible for three quarters of, uh, you know, of, of uh, credits issued. One of those is yeah. going to be off the table moving forward. And the yeah. HIR method is actually due to expire in a, in a couple of years. Mm. I don't know if it's this year or 2025. Maybe it is this, this year. year. So if you had yeah. a, a cake constituted and, and up and running, they, I mean, they are the body that will be in, empowered to approve or not that method moving forward. So, yeah, it's by no means a, a done deal. And so the, the kind of volumes, and this would be a big matter for the safeguard, uh, but not just the safeguard, the kind of volumes of domestic Australian offsets that may be issued going forward and the nature of the activities that make them up, well, it, it's going to shift. Uh, the... Um, the landfill gas capture volumes are going to shrink over time. Uh, no more of the of the current avoided deforestation, a re- regeneration, reforestation activities. I think we are going to continue to see more of those, but there are 
biophysical limits on how much of that can actually take place and be sustained. They're, they're not necessarily tight limits right now, but they're there. So um, more sorts of activities will be relevant in future. Offsetting is both the structure of treating something as an offset, that is you get a credit for doing something you weren't obliged to do, uh, and it is the, the kinds of activities that uh, first avoid, then uh, take carbon out of the atmosphere. And so like the long-term future of, of ACUS is probably things like bioenergy with CCS or direct air capture uh, and, and maybe some continuing reforestation and regeneration. Uh, but it's not avoidance of emissions in the long term. There's the old hobby horse of, you know, dare I say, energy efficiency, um, which, uh, you know, Frankie and I have done a bit of work on in the past, how difficult the ARF made, um, you know, getting up energy efficiency projects for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but it goes to the point that, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, issues potentially can arise of this nature is if you're over-reliant on a, on a small number of methods, you want diversity in, in the, the market as far as possible so that if an issue arises in a particular method or it just, you know, there's a, there's a, it tails off over time, there's other things that can come up and, uh, and uh, enter the market, right? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe one of the other big things to think about into the future when we're thinking about uh, the fact we're going to be dealing with a different suite of methods is what the implications of that are for cost of these credits over time as well. Mm. You could think about the current set of measures, and, you know, um, one's been cancelled, it's like that sort of no longer a case around additionality for avoided deforestation and all of that. But you could almost consider some of these things as having been the lowest hanging fruit in a way um, across, uh, you know, across the economy. And so, Luke, you're absolutely right in the fact that we need to diversify the kinds of sources for this abatement. But as the whole economy is starting to have more of a focus on entities reducing their own emissions uh you know in their own shop and a bit less focused on trying to sell a you know excess abatement you can't imagine a future in which these things get cheaper so i think that's i don't know if that's a good segue into our safeguard chat but um there's so much to unpack here about what the implications of uh, the ACU market in Australia might look like in the next 10 to 15 years and how that weighs up against, you know, taking action in your own operations. So we'll, we'll use that as the, as the segue to the second report we're going to cover, which is, of course, the, uh, the Safeguard Mechanism design paper. The first thing to say is there's a lot of background to this and it was covered uh, in full Technicolor back on episode seven of Let Me Sum Up, The Last Fire in the Forest, the uh, the episode we did with special guest Catherine Murphy. So um, if you haven't listened to that episode, uh, you could pause here and go back and listen to that to uh, turn this uh, already long podcast into a even longer experience. <laughs> That episode is The Hobbit. This one is Lord of the Rings, but not in a cinematic sense because The Hobbit film sucked, sadly. And that episode was great. That episode was great. It was. Yes. Mm. 
I think the first thing to say about this is one of the questions we asked and that that paper asked, because that episode was all about the, the consultation paper on the safeguard reforms. Uh, today we're talking about the the, uh, the government's proposed pathway forward, is one of the questions said, well, what should the ambition of this be? What is the uh, the appropriate task that we set these uh, 215 odd entities that are covered by the safeguard mechanism? Um, they are responsible for about uh, 28% of Australia's Emissions, uh, should that task be proportional um, or because they're harder to abate, be easier on them? Um, mm. As it turns out, the government says, well, it should be proportional. Um, they are, they need to uh, take on uh, 28% of the tasks that the government has set of 43% uh, emissions reduction on 2005 levels by 2030, which I think is super interesting because what does that imply? Are we all doing proportionally what uh, we're responsible for? Well, pro rata is a bit weird. Uh, Like, nobody would think, even before getting a hired gun economic modeler to take a look at it for them and come up with the answer they like, nobody would think that uh, it's most efficient Mm. or most equitable for every divisible sector of the economy to do, quote-unquote, its mathematical share. This one is a little laxer than than full pro rata because it's it's uh, preserving their share of national emissions from 2020 to 2030 as national emissions go down 43%. But the target, the national target, is against 2005 emissions and this sector's emissions have expanded substantially since 2005 because there's a lot of new facilities mm-hmm. and their coal mines and gas wells and LNG facilities. But it's still like limiting that sector to 100 megatons of emissions in 2030 is is a big task. Mm. That's it's like it's big. But it's we can't consider ourselves um, cut off from the rest of the world in in terms of how other countries are moving here, right? Part of the the need to not let uh, you know sort of industry uh, fall too far too far behind in terms of ambition and what they do in the next. 10 years uh, is because if we fail to put some of those, you know, movements in train investments, um, you know, big, bulky, lumpy investments that need to be made um, to reduce emissions in operations, we could, you know, we don't want to see our uh, domestic producers put at a relative disadvantage in terms of the global economy. So, like, we do need to start shifting these sectors. So, for mine, it made, you know, it made sense to, to pitch the ambition where they did. I thought it was really good. I think it sounds fair. Mm. I think that has a lot to do with it, right? When, you, when you're explaining this policy, you're doing your fair share, right? Mm. And that, and you know, whatever the other arguments, and I'm sure there's, there was um, deeper thought put into it, it had, has that attraction as a number. Mm. The fact that there is a number, like an absolute number, that is going to be the targeted emissions for this sector and everything is going to have to add up towards that number. Like that drives everything else. And a lot of other decisions, uh, elements of policy design, um, are constrained by that number. And if one bit of the design gets more generous to somebody who, who doesn't like that setting, that entails that another bit of it gets less generous to somebody else or to the same facility. Um, so it becomes a bit zero-sum because, like, the sum's got to be 
100 megatons of emissions in 2030 for, for these facilities. And that's including new entrants, right? Yes. Well, I mean, they're, they're proposed to be treated slightly differently when it comes to the setting of baselines, and that's um, also significant in the design here that the government's proposing. Should we talk about baselines a little bit? My favourite word, almost. <laughs> Not as good as border adjustment mechanism, but you, go on, Frankie. So when it came to baselines, there were a few different design options on the table. Um, and I think there were proponents for both retaining the existing sort of production adjusted, like an intensity baseline framework. And then there were others that I think supported, and I think perhaps this had been more generous, uh, a fixed baseline um, setting. But the government has uh, settled on retaining that uh, sort of intensity baseline framework. That's uh, that's mm. because it allows for baselines to grow and fall a bit with production because I think we can expect that some facilities might grow in a given year uh, or, you know, open up um, yeah, new production lines and, and things like that. So they wanted to allow, like, keep that flexibility within the design of the baseline. And also that means that you can't hit your target by offshoring some of your production. Yeah. Um, or it's less, it's much less att- attractive to do so. Yeah. The argument that um, some stakeholders made um, was that, well, you know, we've got a fixed task and so there should be a fixed baseline. We've just got to, you know, draw a line in the sand. But the government felt like, you know, it was possible to achieve a fixed target with a production-adjusted baseline and one of the ways that they sort of built in that wriggle room what was the word they used for the it was the reserve it's a reserve yeah Mm. and a reserve yep so they're gonna basically hold back some of the the overall budget um that tenant was talking about like we have a number that the whole sector needs to stick to uh, by 2030. So they're going to hold that back uh, and that'll be spread across, um, you know, all facilities and that would take into account any uncertainty about uh, new facilities that might be coming online before 2030. We talked about production growth being higher than might be expected in uh, at existing ones uh, as well as, you know, this sort of differential decline rate for uh, emissions intensive trade exposed um, facilities that you know might have special provisions around them so all that's notionally catered for and having a reserve and when we talk about the kinds of baselines that are proposed to be introduced they're, they're looking to implement a hybrid approach of both industry average benchmarks and then site specific um, baselines with the intention uh, to transition more towards uh, or entirely actually to industry average benchmarks by 2030 by weighting the two of them. So so every facility is going to have their new site-specific baseline, you know, calculated off uh, more recent data. I think they need to use uh, the last four years of data and they're going to mm. pick the middle two years to calculate um, what the baseline should be. So sort of removing the highest and the lowest. Emissions, George, is an outlier and shall not be counted. Exactly. Is an obscure reference. And then I think there was an example provided in the paper when they talk about um, that hybrid approach uh, over time with the weighting. So, you know, 
2023, maybe maybe 10%, um, you know, of the, the weighting would be towards the industry average benchmark and 90% of that would be a site-specific one. And that's a slowly changing over the decade. Um, and by the time you get to 2930, you know, 100% of that weighting would be uh, more in the industry average um, benchmark and not the site-specific one. So that seems to be a again a, a kind of reasonable and uh, and bit of a compromised uh, kind of position in terms of transitioning the industry away from focusing uh, on calculating site-specific baselines and, and working towards uh, you know everyone being compared against the same benchmark within a given industry I think you're right I, I thought it was a pretty smart way to get where they wanted to be which was the industry average baselines. Um, which has a, have a lot of advantages. It means it's a really clear level playing field everyone's working to. It encourages mm. production at um, less carbon-intensive facilities, um, but going straight to them would have been created, immediately created winners and, and losers yes. um, without any any sort of capacity in a very short time frame to, to kind of a, adjust how you're doing your... Uh, production um so knowing you're going to them gives people time to work towards that um i just wondered whether you needed seven years to make that transition i'll be interested to um uh hear someone explain why they decided that 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 it was seven years as opposed to four years or or five years like uh, like given that um industry average is a great place to be it strikes me that getting there sooner rather than later would have been good. 2030 is a nice round number. I just wonder if there was any rationale beyond, oh, it's a little way away, and it gives people time to, to adjust. Well, I think the, the first thing to keep in mind here is that this is a distributional question, not a question of the total achievement of the scheme. Like mm. the scheme is going to be made to achieve the 100 megatons. The, the totality of baselines, like the factor that baselines are multiplied against, goes down by... 4.9 percentage points per annum for anybody who is not trade exposed baseline adjusted which is going to be very few and so this is just a matter of do within any given industry who does a little better and who does a little worse um that said i think the government just tried to split the difference they had a, a very sharply divided industry stakeholders maybe correlated with whether people would be below average or above average. Uh, And they also, a circumstance where if you did have uh, industry averages from day one, you would be crediting a bunch of facilities for doing better than a baseline, but they were like doing better on day one without doing anything new. And is that reflecting um, decisions that they made in the past to be deliberately uh, more carbon intensive or is it reflecting quirks of geology Um, people would argue about that stuff and there'd be a flow of safeguard mechanism credits from the start back and forth without uh, any additional net abatement beyond the the 4.9 percentage points being being contributed to so uh, hybrid you know takes a little more effort to spreadsheet it but seems fine. And it is significant that that's the approach they've taken because the result of that is that there are a lot less SMCs floating around. Yeah, ah, yeah. which is a big deal. 
because so if you think about uh, what the scheme requires for any one site, if if what was required was that every site would uh, reduce its emissions within its boundaries by four point nine percentage points per year, an awful lot of sites wouldn't be able to do that, mm. or, or would be able to maybe do that on an average basis over a longer period, but not necessarily in any given year. So the rules around flexibility, what are the options that you have to comply when your physical options directly within your facility may not match what's asked of you are quite important. And on paper, there's a lot of those options. But in practice, the overwhelmingly most important option, at least in the early years of the scheme, is that there is legally unlimited access to the use of Australian Carbon Credit Units, the ACUs from the the, uh, the uh, Carbon Farming Initiative that the Chubb Review was having a look at. Uh, they can be used uh, to acquit liability to an unlimited degree uh, as long as you can get them uh, out there in the marketplace. There's other forms, safeguard mechanism credits issued for doing better than baseline probably will be very significant in the longer term but there's not going to be many of them around for a little while, not just because of the um, the fact that it, the baselines are hybrid, but also because implementing the kind of transformational investments that would send a facility well below its baseline and generate a large volume of SMCs is just going to take a while. There, there may be uh, some sites that are in a position to, to go for broke early on. Most are at least going to take a little while, and and some don't reckon that their commercial options are practical until the 2030s. We'll see what people do when uh, when there's a an immediate strong financial incentive to do whatever they can. And then there's other stuff. There's there's like borrowing uh, some of your baseline from future years, but there's a 10% interest rate on that. There's multi-year monitoring, but there's some tight limits on access to that that probably make it pretty small. So really, ACUs are the major source of flexibility in the near term. And government have set a cap on how much that would cost in terms of compliance. So Soft cap. A soft cap, but what the what the government's said in this uh, design proposal is that, that they would sell government-held accus at a fixed price of $75 a tonne and, you know, increasing with CPI plus a couple of percent. Uh, but that's effectively setting a little bit of a ceiling <laughs> on the price people might pay in the next little while. Yeah, I mean, look... I am aware of um, lots of companies that have internal prices on carbon that are higher than that. I guess the calculus that's interesting for me in all of this, because international offsets are not on the table in the first instance. Not at this time. Yeah. They've noted that, you know, there were a lot of stakeholders that would like access to high quality international offsets. And they've sort of said that they'll have a look at that um, and they'll, you know, see what changes might be made to amending legislation. But as the three of us have talked at length about in previous episodes around Article 6 and the machinations at COP, um, all of those rules are still being worked out. So that's not a viable option. So when it comes down to it, even though there's, in theory, unlimited access to the ACU market to meet these obligations, is there going to be sufficient quantity for all these 215 uh, facilities um, 
to access in the volumes they might want you know and at a cost that's uh you know that's reasonable um compared to the big lumpy investments uh, that need to be made uh, in terms of reforming their own operations I think that's a fascinating dynamic that's going to play out in the next little while. So the government certainly reckons that there's uh, going to be enough out there that uh, prices for ACUs, they will rise, but they won't hit its cap. If prices do hit its cap, then it's got a stream of units to sell off. That's not an unlimited stream, but it's it's pretty big. Um, So... I guess we'll see, but how it plays out is is very important because of the things that people uh, out there. Some people have expressed worry about the safeguard mechanism. One of the big things they've expressed worry about is unlimited access to accus and whether that's going to mean that people don't do anything internal ever. One of those people would be me. Yeah. <laughs> Some people, Luke. <laughs> Some people. I I feel not entirely comfortable with unlimited access to accus because I, I feel like it doesn't provide enough incentive for companies to take a really good hard look at the opportunities within their own operations and just being able to say you're able to quit all of your obligations through the purchase of these credits. Um, just It becomes a numbers game and I think some strong incentive to decarbonise, noting that there's challenges um, for many of these businesses, technology might not be available, that might be a thing that takes a number of years to put in place, but, you know, there's got to be a balance um, between the flexibility that you need to work through those processes and the reality that this is a a huge task to decarbonise this group of entities and that you know, we don't have a moment to lose. Um, And so, you know, very serious investigations of opportunities, both near-term, medium-term and long-term, is going to be very, very important. The idea that one of these entities could plausibly do nothing and just buy accus for the next seven years, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe I'm too much of an optimist in one sense. Like, So I'm, I'm sure there may be some companies that wouldn't care or are privately owned um, or whatever um, that might seek to exploit every advantage and just offsetting their way there. But like, that's not where public or investor expectation is going. Like we've um, spent some time talking about uh, greenwashing claims and the and the I guess the the direction of travel in terms of the integrity of claims around reducing emissions and having net zero targets and the simple fact is um, just just offsetting the lot is not consistent with what's set out with best practice. I just think these companies are going to be under an awful lot of scrutiny over the next few years and. I would hope that that starts to play a much stronger role in the in the actions that companies would take. Of course, that said, it would have been nice to see to see a marker laid out in this paper that would suggest that that you know unlimited access is not is not a forever um, situation, and that that is something that they would also look at ratcheting down over time. I guess this is a 
a pretty significant reform and, and you've got to start somewhere. Unlike you, I would have maybe liked to see some guardrails um, set out for how those things would be ratcheted down over time. But I also think this policy isn't going to be the only thing driving those investment decisions, even purely from a risk management perspective. Like if you were having to write the business case for how much your offset program is going to cost you out to 2030, like good luck. Um, I think there's huge uncertainty around what the cost of ACUs might be. Like, I know they're sort of setting a cap at $75 a tonne, but I just, I don't know what, how that's really going to match up to what the business case is when you factor in all the other um, considerations, like what investor expectations are, like, like public scrutiny. Well, and like, there's a core thing that investors expect, and, and that is for companies to not do dumb things that lose money or, or leave a lot of money on the table. And uh, the I think the animating view behind the settings that the government's proposing is that, yes, people are allowed to uh, buy and retire as many accus as they want, but supply and demand and the fact that entitled emissions keep going down a lot and supply of uh, accus from the kind of activities that we we've been talking about is you know not going to be able to grow at the same rate or at least not for long uh, it means that like of course they can't meet all of their um all of their needs through ACUs in practice. It will be far too expensive to outbid, to try to outbid everybody else for those units. And just economics will uh, compel a greater and greater internal focus over time with those who genuinely have the least, the most expensive or simply impractical internal options at the at the back of the of the line for uh, internal action and those who have options are doing it because it will be much cheaper for them to do that. I mean, so by that argument, like I am legally allowed to go out and borrow a whole bunch of money and then give it away to people on the street and, and the law does not particularly need to forbid me from doing that because it would be very unwise. And so... On, on this view, well, don't worry. You've set up the market. You've set up the obligation for people to uh, participate in that market and, and the demand for, uh, for abatement or the, the reduced supply of the entitlement to abate. And, and the little elves and sprites of the market will take it from there. Don't worry. Now, markets have gone awry from time to time in the past. <laughs> But there's a there is some compelling logic in there, isn't there? Oh no! Tenant says, "Don't stress." <laughs> Should we ride, Matt? <laughs> when you keep coming back to, and this is the reason why you would hope that we come out of this chub review process with a functioning, high integrity, transparent, scientifically robust offset scheme that underpins all of that 
if the market is operating, so, so long as the foundation of that is fundamentally sound, then you know I don't know that anyone disagrees that that marketplace has an important role to play in this transition period as those um, big investments are being made. Perhaps one of the things that's maybe slightly disappointing coming out of that job review, so that, like I, I don't think it will have satisfied all its critics where it's where it's landed and so I do unfortunately think that you know there will continue to be this ongoing conversation of oh you're relying on accus like and there'll be some level of skepticism still associated with them and you know I don't think anybody wants that we all want um and need a market um that is high integrity and has trust and you know it's not going to serve us well unless we really deal with those underlying issues so uh, and that's uh, that's not just true for the regulated companies in the in the safeguard mechanism. We haven't even talked about the uh, the extraordinary growth in the in the secondary voluntary market for offsets for companies that are uh, doing this off their own accord to meet net zero commitments that that aren't part of the safeguard mechanism as well. So there's a lot a lot of demand to satisfy there too. So for the most vociferous critics of the emerging climate architecture, this is where the Venn diagram of doom crosses over between these two (laughs) policies, right? Because you've got high-emitting businesses right across the the country able to acquit all their obligations by buying an unlimited number of ACUs. And the ACUs in this you know, characterization of the situation aren't doing anything because they don't have integrity. And so literally nothing's happening, just things are getting shuffled around and, and people are paying money uh, to various other people and we're not actually reducing our emissions. I don't subscribe to that <laughs> very pessimistic view of the world. I think there is a totally plausible role for um, carbon credit Units um, providing that flexibility across the economy, allowing us to decarbonise at the lowest cost that's possible with the architecture that we currently have. But I do think there is these, these lingering concerns around the integrity that it's really going to be really important to find a pathway to resolve. Otherwise, this you know this is going to be a enduring critique of. Uh, the system that's being set up. I'm not sure how that's achieved. Maybe these new the new governance regime that uh, we were talking about earlier can start roll up its sleeves and start to do some of that more detailed work to improve that confidence. Yeah, so I think I think that's right. We touched on before the fact that this uh, cake being set up uh, is, is going to have. Um, you know, a role in improving methods and there's a little bit more separation of uh, of work um, between the CR this cake will be more independent uh, project proponent uh, led process for method establishment supported by the department so it may well be that you get uh, a really bolshy group of people uh, put in place on this cake and, and want to make some uh, sweeping changes uh, to, to the methods that are that are on the table. Is there a Hogwarts envelope making its uh, way down the chimney of Andrew McIntosh? Oh, I mean... Probably not, but you never know. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, that, that would be a very bold choice. I would just acknowledge he's very... Um, 
having heard him talk about this, he's very passionate and, you know, it, you know, it is in the camp that, um, you know, of all the people that want to see it be successful and don't want to see this ongoing conversation uh, around uh, question marks over integrity and things like that. I guess where, I guess where the question I've still got, and I'm not sure if the paper gave an answer in terms of who would have the power to do this, but it feels like the cakes uh, ability to make changes are really just forward looking rather than backwards looking. Um, so I think that one of the remaining critiques might stand in the sense that if people do believe and haven't been persuaded otherwise that there are credits out there that don't represent real abatement and they're allowed to remain, then I'm not really sure what could be done with that. I don't know if any of these uh, reforms to governance would, would empower the cancellation of, uh, of credits retrospectively. <laughs> I think the view of the uh, of the regulator that's that's mentioned in the uh, Chubb report is that there are existing tools available to deal with projects that um, have have not actually met the the rules or, or or been compliant with what was asked. Yeah. Now, if the rules themselves were uh, not well set up, that that probably doesn't help. But. It's not like the arsenal is bare. Yeah, that's right. The CER's role is um, now much more kind of clearly defined and and should um, and would continue to focus on monitoring projects and regulating projects. So I would think maybe the obvious question then to ask is if there had been issues with certain projects, why hadn't there been uh, action taken? And so... I think we then keep circling back around to what's the information that's provided. I think it's really positive that we're um, there were really strong recommendations around improved transparency over the scheme, uh, including um, you know basically making a lot of the data um, default to be publicly available um, insofar as it doesn't compromise any commercial incompetence information. So I think those will be again really important changes. But, um, yeah, I think it's sort of all to play for in the next little while. <laughs> so I'm so distracted by the PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> PowerPoint just keeps plaintively chugging away. Chug, chug, chugging. Trying to bring us on track. Never stop dreaming, PowerPoint. <laughs> Had we done our dash? There's huge more things that could be discussed, but I think we've talked about a lot. Well, I mean, maybe we should talk a little bit about next steps in terms of what's happening with all of this, right? The safeguard uh, design paper is, would you believe it, out for consultation at the moment? There's not much else out for consultation, so people will find it easy to focus on, I'm sure. Yeah, plenty of time. Joke. That was a joke. Jokes. We're all <laughs> no more things to consult on, please, for a little bit. We're all um, very triggered in this conversation. I'm not laughing. <laughs> uh, well, so those design elements are being consulted on until the end of the month. Tenant, you touched on the fact that uh, legislation was uh, put out there for review. So, what are the next steps? In uh, because I think when we talked about this last. There is the need to amend uh, the actual governing legislation, the Carbon uh, Farming Initiatives Act, uh, to 
to provide for, I think, is it to provide for SMCs to be created? Is that right? Yeah, so the, the Anger Act and the Australian National Registry of Emissions Units need to be amended so that safeguard mechanism credits are a thing with a property right that is sufficiently secure that somebody would make a honking big investment on the basis that they might then be able to sell that property right. And notwithstanding there's not going to be a lot of these SMCs for a few years probably, it's still really important to the underpinnings of the scheme. Uh, Like those investments, even if they don't get implemented for a few years, will not advance or be triggered until the legal basis is is there. So that really matters. And then they've got to rewrite the regs uh, for uh, the um, for the safeguard, and those regs have to not be disallowed. So this is important because the opposition has indicated that they will be voting against this legislation, which brings the Greens and the crossbench more broadly into play. Uh, and the Greens, as we know, uh, have a few red lines uh, that they've set out, the most significant being they don't want any more coal or gas extraction projects approved in Australia, Um, and they are unimpressed by the idea that any new projects would have to sort of be uh, enveloped into the overarching emissions reduction tasks. They just don't want them at all. Yeah. Now, what's the actual... Uh, zone for for agreement or compromise or, or whatever. Well, who knows if they know they're not saying on on all sides, but yeah, it's something about uh, the treatment of new facilities, mm. and it's something about confidence that uh, businesses in practice won't just do accuse forever. And there's probably a few ways to try and come at come at both of those. Um, But if something isn't done, then it's all going to fall over in a screaming heap because if the regs are disallowed, uh, if the legislation doesn't pass, uh, that's a a huge chunk of Australia's plan to achieve our 2030 target that uh, is in the never-never until such time as people reconsider, which doesn't sound like a great place to be. And I I don't think that's where we will end up, but... You couldn't rule it out at this point. You couldn't rule it out, but then I guess if you look at the way this this parliament has operated in its first year, like it has been, you know, pretty collaborative in terms of seeking to to pass things through. So, you know, those pathways have been found when it came to the legislation of the economy-wide target. Um, because you know there was there was a lot of the same the same points. Um, um, you know, particularly on the green side that I hold really closely. So, you know, well, I'd like to think that um, there's zone for compromise in all of this. And it does feel like there's room to move on questions, particularly around the application of ACUs into the future. Refer our previous conversation. How's your PowerPoint going, Tina? <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, experiencing Marvin the paranoid android levels of depression <laughs> at our biological failure to uh, respect its uh, digital uh, suggestions. Yikes, but I thought that was a good chat. <laughs> I agree. 
You can argue with that. As always, we close out the show with one more thing in which we all share something that is currently captivating our attention. Frankie, what have you got? Well, whilst we were all enjoying, and hopefully all our summer uppers were too, enjoying our well-deserved rest over the New Year break, uh, I was reading up on uh, a lot of the um, studies that are now starting to become more prominent uh, around the health impacts of, uh, of gas cooktops in the home. Uh, so we're like, I don't know, they're just sort of gaining a lot more prominence and currency in the media commentary. Um, and, you know, I think it's been well established for a while that um, burning gas creates things like not, you know, um, nitrogen dioxide and nitric oxide. So we've got NOx uh, floating around homes and all sorts of nasty stuff in terms of particulates. But, um all their health impacts of um, having gas cooking in the home are, are, you know, of it being very prominent. And and in the case of the US over the break, it sort of spilled over into the the next frontier of the culture wars over there. And Happy days. They were running short of material. <laughs> clearly didn't have uh, enough to be um, uh, getting on with over there. And it took the form of a response to... But I, you know, I think on any other day, or maybe in an Australian context, would have been a rather innocuous um, kind of interview with the commissioner at the the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, uh, who who was talking about um, the health impacts of gas to- cooktops and saying that you know these things can be a hidden hazard. And that, you know, saying in the context of the role that his commission plays and the, and the regulation that's available um, in the US, that, you know, products that can't be made safe can be banned. And then that was just seized on um, by the right fringe of the Republican Party in the US. And, uh, and the claims were, oh, you know, the White House is coming to take your gas cooktop away, you know. Um, saw people like Ronnie Jackson, who's a Texas a congressman from Texas, or uh, Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of uh, Florida, coming out and saying, I'll never give up my gas stove. And the maniacs from the White House come for my stove. They can pry it from my cold, dead hands. Uh, we even saw, I think, a, a chef who has a regular spot on Fox News tape himself to his gas cooktop. So just the hysterics around that. Um, I would not recommend <laughs> taping yourself to any cooktop. Indeed. And uh, thinking about some of the high-end kitchens that are converting to induction, it's because they save themselves the safety hazard of having open flames everywhere near... Um, the fabric of your clothes and all that. So who knows how long that protest lasted for. I'm sure he wasn't getting any cooking done while he was uh, strapped to his stove. But uh, in any case, I think there's some commentary that started here about how long will it take for that culture war to come to Australian shores. And I mean, I thought that was interesting because in a sense that debate's already been happening for some time, Um, albeit in a much more... 
I would say, measured and uh, more evidence kind of based policy debate. I hate to disagree with you, Frankie, but we did have a bit of in Victoria, we had a bit of a burst of highly emotional conflict on this issue in uh, late 2021. And uh, the cold dead fingers were invoked with respect to gas barbecues, I think. Yeah. Um, which there there is no no proposal for for banning uh, or, or taking people's barbecues away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think people feel attached to stoves as a thing that they interact with a lot in a way that they don't have strong feelings about water systems or. Uh, space heating systems as long as they work yeah absolutely i mean what gas cooking is maybe like four or five percent of the gas use in a home that has it for um heating and hot water to you so it's a, it's a minor use but it is about that emotional connection to it so also you know i think it's entertaining thought of to see what happens in a US context and it's sort of prompted the government to come out and say no we don't have any immediate plans to be banning things but you know that's that's not true in parts of the country where you know in places like New York they they are banning a um, connection of new buildings um, to gas uh, for climate purposes not for health purposes um, so I think well you know I just hope we would sort of heed that quality or lack of um debate here and and strive to have a a slight you know more sensible conversation here because those you know those are questions we are currently grappling with and we do need to Mm. navigate a pathway through it and we do need to take the community on a journey um through that too because it's as much about the hearts and minds and the the behavior change piece in it all and maybe just as a a kind of final thing to say you know I just think at some point in the not too distant future we'll think back on this time and and also just think how crazy it was that we once piped highly flammable fossil fuel into the home to have open flames to you know to cook our food like you could just sort of say it's analogous to the way we used to burn coal briquettes, um, you know, in the home for, for heating. And like, you know, that's an absurd notion to anyone in 2023. And I think in not very long, we'll be thinking about gas cooktops the way we think about some of those other technologies for which there are there are better and uh, more efficient alternatives today. So that's my one more thing. Culture war territory, hopefully not in Australia. All right. Thanks, Frankie. Tenant, what have you got? So I've got something that is almost, but not quite, completely irrelevant, (laughs) uh, which is a birthday present that I recently received. And uh, the birthday present is a book called Ignition, an informal history of liquid rocket propellants by John D. Clark, which, uh, if that sounds like uh, a an unwelcome present, uh, you would be wrong. Uh, this this is both delightful in uh, its its nerdiness, and it's delightful in its content. It's this this guy who was a uh, a senior and pioneering chemist. 
uh, in the US in the 50s and 60s and 70s working on uh, defining the, the, the propellants that the military industrial complex and the aerospace sector and NASA uh, would use. And it's a pretty colourful story for something with this many chemical equations in it. Uh, the, the, the level of occupational health and safety uh, attention in uh, this context was often not high. A lot of things went kaboom. Uh, they were working with, like, some of the, the less horrifying stuff that they were working with was called red fuming nitric acid uh, as an oxidizer. But the one relevant thing to climate and energy work that I learned in the process of this book is that um, I had been thinking of liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen rockets as something that had no particular climate change implications because surely if you're combusting hydrogen and oxygen, you're just making water and uh, water vapour uh, will um, condense into rain and, and everything will be fine. But it turns out that it is not actually uh, maximally efficient to precisely match the hydrogen to the oxygen and combust it all. You want more hydrogen in the exhaust stream to get more specific impulse, and you can find out more about that in the pages of this book. And uh, therefore, uh, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen rocketry is going to be a source of greenhouse gas emissions because hydrogen, molecular hydrogen in the atmosphere, is a greenhouse gas while it lasts. It's not as potent a greenhouse gas as methane, uh, but it shares some characteristics in terms of it's potent while it lasts and then it breaks down. In the case of um, of hydrogen, uh, it, it does form eventually water. So there's something to, for me to, a, a hook for me to hang the relevance of this really nerdy book on. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's mostly a fun story of, you know, people at uh, chemical companies uh, shattering the metal vessels in which unthinkably horrifyingly toxic chemicals were stored and uh, those chemicals uh, eating their way through uh, six feet of concrete and three feet of dirt before they were halted. Good fun from a distance. Which puts me in mind of a uh, YouTube video that I was watching recently, one of my favourite YouTube channels, Kyrgyzstan. Um, exploring the question of why we don't just, you know, build a bunch of nuclear power stations and shoot all the fuel into space. Why don't we do that, Luke? <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. It does sound like a great idea. I think we should have a Senate inquiry into <laughs> whether that might be something that we could explore. Well, as it turns out, we can skip that because this YouTube video oh. exists um, <laughs> and, it, and it explains that we would need literally hundreds of rockets a year um, to be shooting into space. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. Well... Elon Musk's taking care of that for us. Except that a significant proportion in the single digits of, of rockets heading into space just explode either on uh, the launch pad or on the way out of Earth. So we would be committing to uh, showering nuclear waste. <laughs> <laughs> 
down onto the earth on a semi-regular basis were we to uh, execute on this uh, on the face for sensible plan. <laughs> well, I think we can make this even less sensible with the dread words Project Orion, but that might be a, a, a breadcrumb trail for a future segment. <laughs> All right. Uh, very quickly, uh, my one more thing. Um, we did our... Uh, favourite report award of uh, 2022, which in that episode I think we were calling a papy, but in subsequent uh, Twitter correspondence uh, it got renamed, much to Frankie's relief. Thank you. Uh, It became a... Does someone want to say? The Wonky. (laughs) Wonkies. And um, I'm just trying to think. We need to give uh, credit to the Twitter user... Rock Wallaby. Rock Wallaby. Yeah, came up with uh, with the uh, the winning byword for the best climate energy paper of 2022. Anyway, so we reviewed our papers, but then I was interested to see that our friends at Carbon Brief had done their own review of climate papers uh, in 2022 through the lens of what had made the news. Uh, they looked at the the top ten papers that got media coverage over the course of that year, uh, I can report that only one of the papers that we read for the pod uh, made it into the the top ten. Um, the appropriately clickbaity climate endgame, exploring catastrophic climate change scenarios, came in at number six. Um, so I'm pleased to report that we're not driven by the mainstream Media uh, confirmed our status of climate report iconoclasts. But when I was looking at our reports versus the things that showed up in the media, I think we're a bit more solutions oriented. So mm. uh, the ones that are in this top 10 list veer strongly towards we're all screwed, <laughs> things are getting bad really, really quickly. Let's see. Um, number one, climate change increases cross-species viral transmission risk. Number two, exceeding 1.5 degrees global warming could trigger multiple climate tipping points. Number three, the Arctic Ooh, that was has... on our list, that one, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. The Arctic has warmed nearly four times faster than the globe since 1979. And I could go on. Oh. <laughs> None of them are particularly cheery. Uh, but it, uh, this was interesting for me because I had, didn't even know that we had that bias, but I think it probably reflects our personalities is that we're spending our time thinking about solutions more than, you know, the degree to think which things are running off the rails. But the media is reporting more on the bad things that are happening. So that's just an interesting dynamic that I thought I'd bring to your attention. Maybe we can we can lean into this with a with a campaign online about how the mainstream media don't want you to know about <laughs> the po- the reports that we will bring to you. I think you meant to say the lamestream media. Oh. Indeed, <laughs> reports and soon nutritional supplements. But I do think, Luke, there's a there's a there's a worrying contradiction between uh, your characterization just now of us as iconoclasts, perhaps as paper hipsters, <laughs> and your statement way back at the start of this 
very svelte 45 minutes. <laughs> check your timer, people. Episode that we were the podcast of record. Mm. What I might rephrase as the New Dork Times. New <laughs> Dork Times. Which is it, Menzel? Uh, that seems so long ago, Tenet. I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to bring this episode. No, no, yes, what? no. I like what? that we're niche hipster climate paper nerds. I think we should lean into our extreme nerdery and not try to compete with the lamestream media, as you were. Well, I think we have not made any effort to compete in this fine episode. Uh, can I finish now? Oh, yikes. Oh, Sorry. I think we can interrupt you at least four more times. It's dynamic. Uh, I'm stopping. Cue a haunting song by Enya to play over the closing credits of this special extended edition. Uh, that is our show for today. Yeah. We're all on Twitter. Frankie is at... Frankie Wiskovich. Tenant is at... Tenant Reed. My handle is at Luke Menzel, although I, uh, I can reveal... I have set up a little outpost on Mastodon. Uh, so you can also find me at Luke Menzel at Oz.social. Just checking out that neck of the woods where there are a few energy nerds hanging out. If you've got reports you want to put in front of us uh, in this uh, new year of Let Me Sum Up, you can contact us at mailbag at Let Me Sum Up.net. You can subscribe to us in your favourite podcast app. There's a big back catalogue of episodes at letmesumup.net. Uh, but for Frankie Muscovich and Tenant Reed, I'm Luke Menzel. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. I've learnt my lesson. I'll never make a big speech about, you know, how we need to shorten the episodes again. <laughs> Which has, I think, resulted... In reverse psychology. <laughs> it has resulted in almost certainly the longest episode... <laughs> But I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I remember us recording for that long when we were only talking about one paper last year. Mm. Like, (laughs) I think we've been more efficient on a per paper basis. Absolutely. (laughs) And I think it's very methodologically sound for us to do the thing and then hunt back through the metrics by which we can say we found a significant positive result. Yes. We definitely don't want to be defining success ahead of time no. and then measuring that because that would be very inconvenient. I'm going to press stop on my recording.